for worshiping with us today. Um, If this is your very first time here at Grace Baptist Church, I would invite you to take a moment and fill out our visitor card or guest card. It's actually a digital card, and you can scan it with your smartphone on the QR code that's in the pew in front of you. It looks like the one on the screen behind me, and that will take you to where you can just answer a couple of questions about who you are, give us some contact information just so we can follow up with you a little bit better and get to know you a little bit more if you have any questions about our ministry, about our church. If you are a returning guest and you've been here now even a number of times, but you still want more information about certain areas of our ministry, uh, you can use the same QR code and it'll take you to the same place where you can shoot us your question. And there's other um, boxes you can check if you want specific information about other areas of ministry. We would be glad to answer those for you. I do want to mention just one more time, if this is your very first visit with us here at Grace, we do invite you to our uh, luncheon this afternoon. It is for our deacon care groups. Our ministry is broken down into smaller groups to help us keep in contact with people. And we're doing it differently this year. We're having uh, four of them and smaller groups. And so we would love to have you come be a part of that if you're a guest with us this morning. And we have plenty of food, so don't be embarrassed. We would love to have you come and, and join us today. Um, I want to begin today by just letting you know of um, a need that you are probably well aware of if you are watching what is unfolding um, in Eastern Europe uh, as we are here today. You're looking at what is happening in Russia and Ukraine. You may be asking yourself, how can I help? What can I do? How can we uh, get, get need, needs met to people that are in that area? Um, I have a couple of friends. I have one friend in particular who lives in Russia. Um, we have other friends that live around the border of Ukraine and in that area, and I'm not uh, going to mention names or specific locations for obvious reasons here publicly. Um, however, one gentleman has contacted me over the weekend, and they are moving uh, children, orphans in particular, across the border out of Ukraine, getting them into um, a different country that I, I won't name, but this is a reputable man, friend, personal friend of mine. And they actually are collecting money um, to purchase mattresses where they can now house many of these orphans that are being displaced out of Ukraine. And so if you are interested in helping with that need, they are, they are trying to raise money for 300 mattresses and they cost 125 American dollars a piece. And so if you are interested in helping with that, you can give online through our website. You also can give in the envelope system, just market Ukraine, and we will make sure that that gets to the appropriate place. As of right now, what they are asking for is just the money for mattresses, but as you can probably guess, as I would guess, there is going to be ongoing needs uh, through this ministry. And if you want detail, I will be glad to give it to you um, in a private conversation. I just would prefer to not do that publicly. Um, But again, I want to reiterate, this is a personal friend of mine. This is not someone that you are clicking on their website and giving blindly. Um, I I speak on behalf of my friend that will go to where he says it will go, and they will make sure that they are helping refugees and others that are fleeing from from Ukraine as as we are even here today. You know, like you, I have watched the events of Ukraine unfold very carefully, And you're probably like me that unfortunately in the midst of this, we have been reminded that warfare in a sinful world is inevitable. In fact, world history demonstrates that peace is an anomaly. 
On the pages of world history, we find the bloodstains caused by ruthless tyrants seeking power, control, and world domination. In fact, on the pages of our Bible, we find conflict, bloodshed, tyranny. The reason being is that our sinful heart always craves something more. And our sinfulness, it leaves a mark on the world as we are trying desperately to make a mark in history. Unprovoked attacks are nothing new. They're driven by depravity, sinful passions, conflict, and war, sadly enough, in our world is to be expected. I don't remember who said this. I just know that I heard this either late in my high school time or early in my college years that someone once said, I don't know how World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. You see, the reality is that as sinful people, we don't learn the truth from history because quite frankly, we can't. We are sinful. And as long as the world spins on its axis, there will be sin. There will be aggressors. And sadly, there will be times of war. In theology, we speak of just war. That there is, even in the book of Ecclesiastes, we find the familiar words of Solomon who said, there is a time to kill. There is a time for war. There is a time to fight. Now make no mistake about it, I am not a politician. I am not standing before you to offer the correct steps that we are to take politically. That's not my purpose. I'm certainly not a military leader. I've never been on a battlefield. I have no educated military suggestions to offer. Like the rest of the world, I have no idea where the story in Ukraine leads in the future of humanity. I don't know. As one of my kids said yesterday, watching BBC News with me, she said, now you know which one it was. I didn't tell you her name, though. She said, Dad, I'm getting tired of living history. Maybe you feel like that. Plagues, war, hurricanes. But what I want you to know this morning, and this isn't a statement of pessimism, please hear me out this morning, but what I want you to know is simply this. Should the Lord tarry, this will not be the last military conflict that this world experiences. In fact, in Matthew 24, verses 6 through 8, Jesus warned this. He said, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you not be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of birth pains. Again, my job today is not to offer political or military commentary on what you're hearing on Fox News. But I want to bring you today the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The good news is still simple. It's still true that God is still on his heavenly throne and he is still saving sinners through the blood of his son. And today, interestingly enough, we are returning to the life of David in our study of scripture. And where we pick up the life of David, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 2, actually chapter 3, excuse me. 2 Samuel 3, and into the beginning part of verse 4. And as we enter back into the life of David, we find him at war. We find David as he has been promised the throne. He has been promised to be king over a unified Israel. And yet, 
years after taking over as king of Judah, he is still not king over the entire nation. David is still facing opposition. He is still facing conflict. Although he was chosen by God, that David was still forced to wait on God's direction and on God's timing. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, I want to just begin by reading one verse, and we'll read some subsequent verses as we move through the sermon this morning. But look at verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. In verse 2 and following down through about verse 5 or so, we have a record of David's sons. I won't read through that, but we see in verse 1 that we are told that David is increasing in strength while Saul is continuing to decline. So before we look at what the Lord has for us this morning, I would ask that you pray with me before we look at Scripture. Father, we thank you this morning that uh, you are still the God of heaven. You are still good. And Lord, this morning our our hearts are, are grieving for people that are fleeing for their lives right now. There are people that are in bomb shelters or they are in uh, subway systems just trying to cling to their lives. Stories of of moms and dads being pulled apart, of, of orphans being found and orphans being transferred to other countries. I saw a video this morning of children in a hospital in a basement just cling, some of them clinging to life. War is a terrible thing. It's an awful thing. And we pray today for our president. We pray, God, for our military leaders. We pray for the leaders of NATO and other nations that are, that are trying to to handle this situation that our globe, that the world right now and Europe is facing right now. And God, as we look to your word this morning, it's by no accident that we are coming to a text that is dealing with the issue of war. And how do we address it? How do we handle it? I didn't pick this text today. It just happened to be the one that was scheduled weeks ago for this morning. And so, Lord, as we look together today at this text, we're going to see how David handled conflict. We're going to see how David, the man who had a heart after you, was one that can show us, while not perfect, but a man who understood the importance of restraint in conflict. And so, Lord, I pray that you would direct our hearts today to this text and apply it to our lives. And again, Lord, we just pray that you would be uh, with the people of Ukraine this morning. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Given the complication of the rise to power, there's undoubtedly would have been moments in David's life that he probably would have been a lot like you and a lot like me, where he would have been questioning God's promises. Opposition was continuing, time was passing, but David was still not king over all of Israel. And now we come to 2 Samuel 3 and 2 Samuel 4, and we're going to read just three accounts this morning in this much longer account. We'll get to some more later. Three accounts that take place that are leading in David's life to bring him to the place that he's going to be king that Hollywood can't write a script this good. This is profoundly intriguing, profoundly wicked in so many ways. And yet God was going to place his chosen man on the throne over Israel 
despite the conflict and despite the opposition, that God was going to keep his promise to this man, David. So as we look at these events today, I want you to see with me three priorities that David illustrates as he approaches, amazingly, military conflict. Now, we can certainly apply this to conflict in our own lives. We can apply this to conflict in a very general sense. But as the Lord would have it, we are looking at conflict within the context of war. A war, given verse 1 of chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, this has been a long, prolonged battle. And the first priority that I want you to see is found in the opening verses 6 and following of 2 Samuel, that David's priority was peace. David was a, was a warrior, no doubt. David had had his military conflicts where he had fought, where he had been on the battlefield. But in this context, David is not seeking bloodshed. Instead, David is going to make his priority to be peace. The first verse of chapter 3 tells us that following the battle of Gibeon that we found way back in our study, that we studied well weeks ago, that civil war begins to break out. And you remember that Israel at this time is still divided between the tribes to the north and Judah to the south. Saul, his son, is still king over the northern part of the nation, and David is still now ruling in the south. And notice how God sovereignly begins to pave the way for David to become king over a unified Israel. Look with me, if you would, in verse 6 of 2 Samuel 3. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. I won't get into Abner, but he has been a military leader now under Saul, and now once again under Saul's son. All of the power really in Israel to the north is not with the king's son. It's not with Saul's son. It is really in Abner. He truly is the leader in the north. Notice verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rispah, the daughter of Ai, and Ishbosheth, who is Saul's son, now king over the northern part of the nation, said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now let's stop there for a minute. What is happening? What is, what is this about? Well, a concubine, this was part of uh, the, the king would take many different wives very often for the purpose of military power and political power. Very often they would have many different wives and concubines and people that were living within their household. In order for uh, what, what Ishbosheth is doing here by laying this accusation against Abner is if a person took a concubine or a wife of a former king that was seen as an assault on the throne. He is accusing him of an insurrection. He is accusing him, Abner, of trying to get the throne over Ishbosheth, and he is trying to take over as king. Now notice verse 8. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? Now, that's an interesting question, but what he is basically asking him here, a dog, by the way, in their culture was not something that you invited into your house. They were unclean animals. They lived out in the streets. And basically, the question, this is kind of a metaphor, are you calling me a traitor? 
Are you calling me a traitor to the throne by accusing me of having a physical relationship with this concubine? And so we see that Abner is angry over this accusation. And notice what he says in verse 8. To this day, I have kept showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. He says, the only reason, Ishbosheth, that you are currently still independent and not under the rule of David is because of me. Now, by the way, Abner is not being arrogant. He's being accurate. That's true. That is absolutely a true statement. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Now, commentators are going to debate back and forth whether or not Abner was guilty or innocent of this charge. We're not told specifically I would suggest that he is innocent of this charge. I don't see any indication in this text that he had done what Ishbosheth is accusing him of, remembering that Ishbosheth is weak, he's paranoid, and he's a lot like his dad. So he's a little bit unhinged from time to time. So, by the way, if Abner wanted to be king, his next decision makes no sense. Why would you go to David? This is what he's going to do. Notice in verse 9, God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now notice what Abner says. You know what, Ishbosheth, if it's going to be like that, you know and I know that God has promised the kingdom to David. And the only reason this hasn't become a reality to this point was because of Abner, not because of the king. So he says, you know what? I'm going to help bring to reality what God has promised. Ishbosheth, you're done. Your time as king is over. Now, before we go into the next part of the text and watch what happens, think about this for a moment from David's side. David has this promise that God has promised him that this entire land is going to be yours. For two years, they've been fighting back and forth. David has not initiated an attack yet that would go in and attack the house of Saul. In fact, he has shown nothing but respect to the house of Saul. Even when Saul was alive and Saul tried to kill him on more than one occasion, David never took revenge on Saul. And to this day, even now, after a prolonged warfare, David is not initiating a military action to go in and to cause harm to Saul. Instead, he is now going to rely on diplomacy. He is pursuing peace. Watch what happens in verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf. Abner can't go into Judah. He would be a marked man. If anybody ever saw him... He would have been shot, he would have been killed, he would have been eliminated. To whom does this land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all of Israel to you. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face." Now, if you've not been around for the study of this, Michael was Saul's daughter that was given to David in marriage. 
However, Saul at one point saw fit to take Michael away from David and he gave her to another man to be his wife. And so David says to him, to the messengers sent by Abner, you know what? I will not see Abner until you come back with Michael. Why would he say that? Well, two reasons. One, he wants to make sure that this isn't a setup. He wants to make sure that this is a legitimate offer of a peaceful resolution to the situation where David has been promised this kingdom. So he wants to make sure that this isn't a trick. But number two, politically, this then ties David back to the house of Saul that would show then he was the rightful king over all of Israel. So there's politics at play, of course, as there always is in these situations, but there is also a movement toward peace. I won't read the next few verses, but David goes through and he tells the messengers, let me just remind you of what I did to earn Michael by killing the Philistines that Saul had asked me to do. I had, I had done that as he asked. There is a sad point in this occasion, though. There's a very sad commentary on how politics, unfortunately, creates people who get kind of hurt in the process. Michael's remarried. And guess what? He loves Michael. He doesn't want her to be taken. Notice in verse 15, Petiel, the son of uh, Laish follows them. Her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Behrim. Then Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. He has to watch his wife be taken from him to be taken back, to be given to David in order for this covenant to be conferred. Now, there's more politics in verse 17 down through the next few verses. Abner, I won't read all these verses either, but Abner is also a politician. He's a smart man. He goes to the elders of Israel. And these were the leaders of Israel. These were the leaders of uh, the northern part of the nation. And he goes to them and he speaks to them and he tells them his plan. And he goes to the Benjamites in person. Why? Saul and Ishbosheth were of the tribe of Benjamin. They would want to know that he would have their support. He does that. He gains their support. Verse 19, Abner spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David and Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. So the deal is done. The covenant is signed. The treaty is signed. There is now a peaceful resolution to a war that has been going on now for two years. The fighting is going to end. Everything looks marvelous until we get to verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner. This is what they would do for any dignitary. And the men who were with them, and Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all of Israel to my lord the king that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Verse 22, just as the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them, which they had to do in order to keep their own government functioning, Abner was not with David at Hebron for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. Notice the writer tells us this twice. This is peaceful. 
And when Joab and all the army was with him came and told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and has let him go and has gone in peace. There it is again. Then Joab went to the king and he said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and you know all that you are doing. Now I won't read the rest of the verses, but Joab basically does this. He sends out some people to get Joab, and he brings him back to Hebron, and he kills him. He calls him behind the gate. He says something like this, I wasn't there, this is just how I imagine it. Hey, could I have a private word with you? And Joab stabs him in the stomach and kills him. Why? Because Abner had killed his brother. Abner had killed his brother in a previous battle, and now Joab takes revenge on this man. Now, there is a couple of problems, huge problems with this. First of all, Hebron was actually a city of refuge. That meant that if someone had been killed inadvertently, that they could come to Hebron, and family could not take revenge on them they had to be protected and yet he violates that and he murders this man and he kills Abner and he puts him to death now I won't go through the rest of the chapter but after this verse 31 of this text David mourns the death of Abner and he puts on uh, tells them to tear their clothes and to put on sackcloth and to mourn for Abner And David then follows after the funeral procession and they bury him in Hebron and they give him a place of honor. They bury him with honor. Now let's just pause there for a moment. How does this apply to us? What does this have to do with us? This is a military conflict. This happened now years ago. This happened a long time ago. This happened in a very different culture than than ours Well, we are studying the life of David. And when we think about David here, we see his pursuit of peace. Not only do we see his pursuit of peace, but we see the fact that David had also a priority of honor. He treated people with honor. Think about this for a moment. David wanted to follow God's path for his life, but he was not willing to violate God's commandments in order to achieve the position that God had promised to him. He was not willing to go in and to raise up arms against Saul in a way that would violate God's direction. And so David wisely seeks a peaceful resolution before taking any kind of military action against the people of Saul. And I think we see another final beautiful picture here from these opening verses is that David willingly allowed God to direct the circumstances that would place him on the throne over all of Israel. Think about this for a moment. If David had gone in in a military sense and taken control over the north under a siege, under an attack, it's very unlikely that the people of Israel, the tribes of Benjamin in particular, would have been now supporting David becoming king. And so in David's patience and David's um, compassion and honor, he now wins the approval of the entire nation, and now he is king over 
all of the land. But before we tie all this together, I want you to see one more event. So we have this peaceful treaty that is undermined by Joab murdering Abner. We now have an occasion where David shows honor to Abner. He buries him in Hebron. But it's not over yet because we still have a king alive. Notice what happens in chapter 4, verse 1. And when Ishbosheth saw his son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed as if he had any. And all of Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana, and the other was Rechab, sons of Rimon. Notice this, men of Benjamin. They'll jump down to, uh, we'll get down to that, we'll get down to a couple of the verses in just a moment. But these two men, they are, they are assassins, basically. They work under Ishbosheth. Then in verse 4, we won't read these verses, but we are now told about Jonathan, and we are, who is Saul's son, who had been killed, but we're told about his son, his son, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. We'll get to him later. But it's interesting, what is happening here? This is now the end of the line for Saul's people, the house of Saul. Ishbosheth is afraid, he's weak. He is now in trouble of losing everything. And Mephibosheth, if you don't know about him, we'll learn about him later, he's crippled. He was injured as a baby when uh, the person carrying him out of the city fell on him and he hurt himself. And so Saul's lineage is basically over. There is no one else to rule and reign in the name of Saul. Now let's go down to verse 5. Now these two assassins, Rechab and Banna, set out and about the heat of the day come to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking a noonday rest and they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat and they stabbed him in the stomach. This is like apparently the mode of, of killing people right at this period of time. Then Rechab and Banna, their brother escaped and they went to the house and they lay in the bed, bedroom. They struck him. They put him to death and they beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought his head, the head of Ishbosheth, to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now, what they expected was exactly what those who killed Saul expected, or those that claimed to have killed Saul expected. They expected honor. But David, verse 9, answered these two men, and he said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when he told one to me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I give him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man, a righteous man, interesting, in, the, in his own house and in his bed. Shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And long story short, David has them executed. It's interesting when we look at the life of David and we think about this man who God had called, God had promised a kingdom to, and yet, despite God's promises, despite what God had told him would become a reality for his life, that he would 
be this shepherd king. He would be a man that would lead the people of God. He would be a man that would shepherd the people of God. And yet, what David faced in following God, what David faced when he surrendered to God's call, was nothing but war and conflict. And yet, despite all of this, David remains a man of integrity. He remains a man who is not seeking revenge. He's not seeking to annihilate Saul and his house. Instead, David allows God to work through the challenges of his time in order to place him on the throne of Israel. You know, I don't know about you, but when I read these accounts and I look at David's life, a man who sought peace even in the midst of conflict. Now, let's put the war side of this account aside for a second. When you're in conflict, interpersonal conflict, what do you seek? Usually we seek victory at all costs, don't we? We don't very often, even in the military sense, we would think that David would be about absolute military victory and annihilating the house of Saul. Instead, David is a man of peace, despite the fact he is a warrior. He wants peace. He seeks diplomacy. But here's a second lesson we learned from David. Not only was he a man who would pursue peace, he showed honor even to those who previously had shown him harm, tried to do him harm. Abner was an enemy. And yet in his death, when Abner is put to death, there is no sense of revenge. He doesn't say to the people around him, say, hey, just go throw him in a ditch somewhere. He doesn't deserve to be honored in death. Instead, David, we didn't get to the text, but David writes and sings a lament at his funeral. David follows the, the procession and he goes and has Abner buried in honor in Hebron, which was, we don't think that's a big deal, but that was a big deal to them. He showed honor to those to whom honor was due. But don't misunderstand that David was also a man of justice too. These two men, these two assassins who had killed the king, who wanted an award, uh, reward for their act, cutting off the head of Ishbosheth, really a symbol to say that the house of Saul has been beheaded. It is no more. It is over. They expected to be rewarded, and yet they are executed for their crimes. So while David was a man of peace, while David was a man who pursued integrity, he certainly was still a man that did not ignore or believe that evil was not a real part of this world. You see, understanding that evil is real and that sinful people will create conflict is really only part of our story. I open with that today. There is always going to be, even according to Jesus, that there is always going to be wars and rumors of wars. But I want to remind us as we end today that God is still sovereign in the affairs of mankind. God is still gracious. God is still good. God is still saving those who repent of their sin. 
In fact, I was reminded by Daniel's words in, Jan, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 22, when David, or excuse me, Daniel said, Blessed be the name of, the, of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. God is sovereign. David rested in the sovereignty of God. David found hope in the sovereignty of God. David rested patiently in the sovereignty of God and allowed God to work in and through the people and circumstances around him that David now would become the king as promised by Almighty God. But in this text, we find David's three priorities in this story, peace, honor, and integrity. It was what set David apart. It is the reason that David, when every king subsequent to David, they're all compared back to his kingship. They are compared to him. Oh, he has imperfections. We'll learn about those. But he was a man of honor, integrity, a man after God's own heart. So while we are here today, we are in the safety of our auditorium this morning. That's by God's grace. We understand that. But part of our world is being ripped apart by war, conflict, people dying on the battlefield. When I look at that, I hate the horrors of what is happening, but I am reminded of the plain, simple fact that mankind is sinful. That evil is real. But I'm also reminded that there is a cure for that sinfulness. There's a cure for that evil. NATO isn't the answer. Political treaties are not the answer. They may end the conflict temporarily. But the answer is Jesus Christ. And David was a picture of the Messiah that would come. A shepherd, a king, a man of integrity, a man of honor. So I don't know your heart this morning when you look at the world stage that we are living in right now. Maybe you're discouraged, maybe you're scared, and I understand that. But let me ask you to allow the world events to point you to a sweet heavenly truth that one day Jesus Christ is coming back. One day there will be no war. One day there will be peace. And it will be when we enter into God's presence for all of eternity. My question for you in closing is, are you ready for the time that Christ, the Messiah, returns as the King of kings and Lord of lords? Jesus said that wars, earthquakes, they're birth pains. It just means that the history of mankind is heading toward the coming of the real king. And as we look at these world events, are you ready for that? And number two, are you as a believer living like David, pursuing peace, showing honor, and a man or woman of integrity? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share 
this text this morning. It's a long one, a lot of narrative here. But Lord, every word that we read this morning, even ones we didn't have time to read, they are there because you want us to learn from them. They're instructive for us. They're inspired for us to read and to understand. It's curious that we have a lengthy account about war and treaties, conflict, and yet in the midst of this story, we see truth. We see truth that you are still sovereign. We see truth that a man like David could patiently wait for you to bring him to the place that he would be king, a man that showed honor even to his enemies and showed integrity throughout these accounts. And so, Lord, I pray that as we end our service this morning, that each one of us would be reminded of your sovereignty and your goodness. And if there are some that are, that are here today that are not sure of their salvation, they've never maybe understood what that means and how they can know for sure that they are a child of God, I pray that even today that they would see their need of redemption. And for us as believers, God, may we develop a character like that of David. Thank you, Lord, again for this text. And as we close our service in a moment, I pray that you would stir us to respond as you lead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask Pastor West to come and lead us in a closing song today. Amen. I want to reprise a song that we sang earlier, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. And let me encourage you, as Pastor did, to use this time to respond to the Lord's working in your heart this morning. Let's stand as we sing, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. second verse. Can we sing that second verse? Jesus to Calvary did go Have a great week. You are dismissed.